you're listening to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-run podcast out of the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program. My name is Conray for first year, and I'll be one of your hosts. Today, we're going to talk about HIV, also known as human immunodeficiency virus. Let me paint you a clinical picture. Today in clinic, Mr. X, a 32-year-old male, presents to you with one week of worsening malaise, myalgia, sore throat, and chills. He denies any sick contacts or recent travel. His past medical history is non-contributory, stating he only has seasonal allergies and requires no further medical management. He drinks alcohol occasionally, denies smoking, and is sexually active with multiple partners, which include men and women. Condom use has been inconsistent, and in past he has been treated for both chlamydia and gonorrhea. Today, you realize that he is at risk for HIV and decide to evaluate further. First, we'll hear from Dr. Julia Gray about screening and prevention. Then, Dr. Jeremy Smith will talk about the initial evaluation. Finally, to wrap up, Dr. Maddie Foley will discuss use of antiretrovirals. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, I'm Julia Gray, a second year medicine resident at the University of Utah, and I'll be leading us through the next section where I discuss the screening and prevention of HIV. First, let's start with some HIV demographics. At this time, the CDC estimates that more than 1.2 million people in the U.S. are living with HIV, and approximately 13% of them are unaware of their infection. Unfortunately, HIV continues to disproportionately affect the Black and Latinx communities, as well as sexual and gender minorities. In the 1990s, the introduction of syringe service programs decreased the rate of HIV incidence in those who injected drugs. Yet since 2013, HIV transmission in this same population group has started to rise again in conjunction with the opioid epidemic. Who should be screened for HIV? Currently, the CDC recommends that anyone between the ages of 13 and 64 years old who has ever been sexually active should be tested for HIV. However, 51% of those living with HIV are actually over 50 years old. Knowing this, it is recommended to test all adults for HIV based off risk factors identified through a thorough history taking that includes sexual practices regardless of age. When seeing patients in our clinics, we should all make sure to include HIV testing as part of our regular healthcare maintenance, just as we ensure they have up-to-date cancer screening and immunizations. Therefore, it is currently recommended to use an opt-out strategy for HIV testing. The opt-out strategy involves letting patients know they will be tested for HIV unless they decline testing. This helps to normalize HIV testing. Just as we do for any other chronic condition, we need to be thinking about which subsets of the population are at an increased risk to contract HIV. Those who are at an increased risk should be offered at least annual screening or as frequently as every three to six months as indicated by the frequency of HIV risk exposures. Remember, to help identify those individuals who are at an increased risk of HIV infection, we need to be routinely asking sexual history during annual patient checkups and intakes for hospital admissions. The best way to do this effectively is through practice. Make sexual history taking a standardized part of collecting your H&P. Those who are at an increased risk of contracting HIV include those with higher risk sexual practices, including condomless sex, transactional sex, or sex work. Other individuals at higher risk of contracting HIV include those recently diagnosed with a bacterial STI or who have had a partner recently diagnosed with HIV or a bacterial STI. Certain populations, such as men who have sex with men, persons that inject drugs or share needles, and those with a history of an HIV-positive sexual partner are also considered at an increased risk. 
sexual assault survivors, infants exposed to HIV in utero, and those who've been diagnosed with tuberculosis, hepatitis B, or hepatitis C should also be screened. HIV screening is also a standardized part of prenatal care of pregnant patients. Screening should also be provided to anyone requesting the service. If you have a hard time remembering which populations are at higher risk of contracting HIV and when to screen, refer to the CDC's website, which I found to be a helpful resource. Unfortunately, risk-based testing alone has not been effective in decreasing HIV transmission rates because providers do not adequately assess risk in most patient encounters. Often, we as providers fall short when it comes to asking patients about risk factors that may put them at risk for contracting HIV or taking a history in a way that makes patients feel comfortable disclosing risk factors for contracting HIV. Therefore, it is important that we all continue to familiarize ourselves with HIV screening recommendations and put this knowledge into practice during our patient encounters. Remember, HIV is still very stigmatized, as are many of the risk factors that are associated with its higher rate of transmission. Therefore, it is important that we are empathetic and patient when collecting history about potentially sensitive subjects. Up next, what does the screening test actually involve? Screening for HIV starts with the HIV 1 forward slash 2 combination antigen antibody test. Importantly, in the first five days of HIV transmission, viremia is undetectable. Seroconversion typically occurs two to six weeks after exposure, and 99.9% of those living with HIV will have a positive antigen antibody test by week 12 of infection. Additionally, this test can identify more than 80% of acute infections, meaning tests performed less than 30 days after an exposure. The reason the antigen antibody test is less sensitive for early infections rests on the fact that IgG antibodies typically take 30 days to develop. Keep this in mind when testing your patients. There are a few rapid tests approved for detection of HIV antibodies that can be done on either serum, plasma, saliva, or dry blood. These tests are reliable for established infections once anti-HIV IgG antibodies have fully developed, but they cannot be used to diagnose acute infections. The development of these rapid tests are making the availability of HIV screening more accessible as they can be performed outside of the classic healthcare setting where an antigen antibody test is performed. I mentioned how the antigen antibody test can miss those with an acute infection. It's very important to recognize individuals who have contracted acute HIV as the viral load and thus risk of transmission can be higher in the acute period. Unfortunately, acute HIV infection is often not recognized because the vague constitutional symptoms can be mistaken for other common viral illnesses. Those symptoms typically include fever, fatigue, myalgias, arthralgias, lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis, and rashes. When one does have clinical suspicion for an acute HIV infection, the best test to order is a quantitative RNA-PCR assay to detect HIV viremia. This will start becoming positive by day 6 to 8 after infection has occurred. The antigen antibody test can then be used to confirm infection when seroconversion happens at around 2 to 6 weeks after exposure. Now let's transition to HIV prevention. There are many aspects to prevention which include the use of condoms as well as knowing the risk factors of sexual partners. More recently, HIV prevention has also included medicine known as PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Truvada and Descovy are the two approved PrEP medications. They both contain emtricitabine tenofovir, antiretroviral agents, which prevent acquisition of HIV. Both are tablets that are taken once daily. When taken as directed, PrEP is 99% effective in reducing sexual transmission of HIV and 74-84% effective in reducing transmission through injection drugs. As of December 2021, the integrase inhibitor, cabotegravir, also known as Apertude, has also been approved. 
This is a long-acting injectable administered every two months. This injectable has been shown to reduce the transmission of HIV up to 89% when compared to Truvada, giving us a promising hope to further reduce HIV transmission. PrEP was first approved by the FDA in 2012. However, there remains an enormous gap in its use. In 2019-2020, only 23% of persons with an indication for PrEP were taking it. The barriers to PrEP are complex and interconnected. While HIV disproportionately affects the Black and Latinx communities, the use of PrEP in these communities is lower than among white persons. For example, recent data shows that PrEP coverage was only 8% for Black persons, 13.7% for those in the Latinx community, and 61.1% among white persons. Transgender women who independently carry a significantly high risk for contracting HIV are prescribed PrEP at a very low rate. Barriers to PrEP are deeply rooted in systemic racism, inadequate access to healthcare, housing instability, lack of health insurance, transphobia, stigma, and low income. Of note, the drug manufacturer has drug coupon cards available to decrease the cost of PrEP, and the federal government has a program called Ready, Set, PrEP, which provides access to PrEP for free for uninsured persons. How should we identify persons who may benefit from PrEP? You can look at Figure 2 in the 2021 update for the pre-exposure prophylaxis for the prevention of HIV infection in the U.S. to help guide you in prescribing PrEP. We'll include this figure in our show notes. Briefly, I'll describe the figure and how to use it to screen patients for PrEP. First, has your patient had anal or vaginal sex in the past six months? If yes, proceed down the chart. Next, does your patient have an HIV-positive partner? If yes, then inquire about the partner's viral load. If the viral load is undetectable, then the risk of HIV transmission is essentially zero, but you can still offer PrEP through shared decision-making with the patient. However, if the viral load of their partner is detectable or unknown, PrEP is recommended. In the next scenario, ask if one or more sexual partners has had an unknown HIV status. If yes, then inquire about condom use. If condoms are always used during sexual activity, then the decision to use PrEP should again be based off of shared decision-making with the patient. If condoms are not always used, then PrEP should be recommended. Final scenario to consider. Has the patient had a bacterial STI, such as gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis in the past six months? If yes, this suggests sexual activity that could lead to an HIV exposure, and PrEP should be offered. Prior to prescribing PrEP, make sure to test for pregnancy, STIs including syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, hepatitis C, and hepatitis B. Renal function also needs to be tested as a creatinine clearance of greater than 60 is needed for Truvada and greater than 30 for Discovy. Renal function should be rechecked at least every six months. Because PrEP can lead to HIV drug resistance patterns in a person who is already living with HIV or who contracts the virus while on PrEP, HIV testing with a negative result should occur prior to starting PrEP and then again every three months while on the medication. Thanks for following along for the screening and prevention section of this podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Jeremy Smith and I'm a third year internal medicine resident here at the University of Utah. And I'm here today to talk to you all about the initial evaluation steps for a patient who has just been diagnosed with HIV. Once you have confirmed infection with the combined antigen antibody test, the next step is to basically stage the severity of the disease. There are three serologic studies that should be obtained in order to do so. They are the HIV viral load, CD4 count, and HIV resistance panel. Let's walk through each of these together. The first one, HIV viral load, serves as an indicator of how active the virus is within the patient. The next, CD4 count, is important for a number of reasons. 
It serves as an indicator of how much the immune system has been damaged by the virus and also plays a role in prophylactic medications as well as what vaccinations to give. The third test that I mentioned is the HIV resistance panel. It detects mutations in the viral reverse transcriptase and protease enzymes that are associated with antiretroviral resistance and therefore can definitely impact what medications you will choose to treat the patient with. It is estimated that about 15 to 20% of patients with newly diagnosed HIV have an isolate with at least one drug resistance. Other labs that should be obtained for your patient would be a CMP to evaluate their electrolytes, renal function, and hepatic function, an A1C, lipid panel, vitamin D levels, and a complete urinalysis. We should also be screening for co-infections or other comorbidities with HIV. Everyone diagnosed should receive a TB test, either a PPD or Quant Gold, as well as testing for other sexually transmitted diseases like syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. We should also be testing for all viral hepatitis as well. Make sure your patient is also up to date on their pap smear or anal pap test if indicated. In regards to vaccinations, patients with HIV should receive the pneumococcal vaccine as well as all routine vaccinations that are recommended for adults based on their age and risk factors. Live vaccines like the herpes zoster and varicella vaccine should be delayed until the CD4 count is greater than 200. A full list of these vaccines can be found on the CDC's website within their vaccination section. And that wraps up our section on the initial evaluation of newly diagnosed HIV. Hi everyone, my name is Maddie Foley and I'm a first year internal medicine resident at the University of Utah. I'm here to discuss antiretroviral treatment of HIV infection. The goals of treatment are to reduce morbidity, prolong survival, and improve quality of life. We can do this by maximally minimizing the HIV load below the limit of detection, defined as less than 20 copies per milliliter, and increasing the CD4 cell count. There are multiple complete, well-tolerated regimens now available as a single daily pill. Thus, treatment is within the scope of practice for a general internist. Effective HIV treatment is beneficial both on an individual level and from a public health standpoint by preventing transmission to neonates and sexual partners. Research, such as the START study, has demonstrated that earlier treatment of HIV decreases serious AIDS events such as tuberculosis, pneumocystis pneumonia, AIDS-related cancer, in addition to serious non-AIDS-defining events. Thus, treatment should be initiated as soon as HIV is diagnosed or within the first week. Treatment consists of a combination of two or three medications in order to increase the treatment efficacy and prevent resistance. Patients can expect to be at maximal viral suppression 4 to 24 weeks after treatment initiation. Treatment success has been seen in 85 to 90% of people in clinical trials, although this number is likely lower in clinical practice. If you are concerned that a patient has failed their viral treatments because of elevated viral loads, it is important to repeat measurements because as many as 20 to 60% of patients may actually experience transient viral load increases known as blips, which do not have any clinical consequences and do not actually represent a treatment failure. It is critical to frequently assess the medication list for patients on ART as drug-drug interactions are a common issue that are frequently under-recognized. 
The most common of these are drugs that affect ART drug absorption or hepatic metabolism, such as statin medications or steroids with regimens that contain protease inhibitors. It is critical to provide continuous ART therapy without interruptions to prevent the inflammation that results from low-level viremia that may contribute to increased risk of non-HIV-associated and organ disease and cancer. Avoiding interruptions in therapy also prevents transmission based on the knowledge that undetectable equals untransmittable. A large study called the HPTN trial demonstrated a 93% reduction in HIV transmission when using ART treatment as prevention. When selecting ART, you can refer to the U.S. Public Health Service treatment guidelines to select an initial regimen. Factors such as pregnancy, certain comorbid conditions, and concerns about weight gain should guide this decision. There are four different regimens that are recommended for non-pregnant adults, which are integrase strand transfer inhibitor based, and there are three regimens preferred for pregnant adults. Each regimen is a combination of two or three drugs. It is important to note that a Bacavir cannot be used in patients with positive results on HLA B5701 testing because this demonstrates the possibility of a hypersensitivity reaction. It is also important to counsel patients that most adverse effects of treatment occur within the first few weeks and resolve over time. Guidelines for monitoring vary depending on certain patient characteristics. However, all patients should have viral load and CD4 count measured two to eight weeks after therapy is initiated. You can explain to patients that the CD4 cells reflect the improvement in immune function, while viral load demonstrates how well we have suppressed HIV replication. Thus, these two labs reflect very different things. It is important to note that complete restoration of CD4 count does not necessarily mean that a patient is cured, as there are other HIV-associated immune defects that cannot be as easily measured. Once treatment is established, asymptomatic patients should be monitored with CD4 count and viral load every three to six months. Once a patient has been stable for two years, viral load testing can be done annually and monitoring of CD4 cells becomes optional. CMP and CBC should be repeated at all of these time points as well, in addition to urinalysis, lipid profile, and glucose testing at diagnosis and annually thereafter. Hello, I'm back. Good work, Julia, Jeremy, and Maddie. Now let's apply this information to our case. We have Mr. X, a 32-year-old male with history of worsening malaise, myalgia, sore throat, and chills. Factors that increase his risk for HIV include the unprotected sex, STD exposure, and MSM. This is not an extensive list, and I really do recommend you check out the CDC's guidelines for screening of HIV. However, in our case, we were concerned enough that we ordered an HIV antibody test and check his HIV P24 antigen. Both end up coming back positive, and to determine the severity of his HIV, we order viral load, CD4 count, and HIV resistance panel. The viral load is greater than 100,000 copies per milliliter, and his CD4 count is less than 500. Based on the resistance panel, you decide to start the patient on a combination of Bictegravir, Tenofovir, and Emtricitabine. This treatment will be lifelong, and interruptions should be avoided as much as possible. Viral loads and CD4 are our important prognostic indicators and should be used to monitor treatment response. 
Therapeutic goals should include a viral load of less than 20 copies per milliliter and a CD4 count of greater than 500. Other things to consider is potential prophylactic treatment of AIDS-defining illnesses based on CD4 count. That's all we have for now, and I hope you enjoyed. Thank <music> you.